All right, church, this morning we finish the first chapter of the book of Titus. And as we do that, I'll give you a little review of what this book is about, a refresher to those of you who are new as well. The book of Titus is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to his apprentice named Titus, whom he had left on an island called Crete. They worked together for a while on this island as part of their journeys together. There were many churches on the island of Crete. They were not yet mature churches. They were new baby churches. We would call them church plants today. They needed to be brought to a place of strength, of maturity, so that they could leave them. Paul had to leave, so he left Titus there for that task. And there were really two parts of that task. And the first chapter of the letter will read about leadership, appointing leadership. And then in the second part, we read about Christians living godly lives. With those two things, the church is strengthened when we live out the gospel and have the right leaders in place. Sometime later, Paul wrote this letter to Titus, which we're reading now, full of principles that can strengthen the church, mainly about leadership and lifestyle for Christians. We look there for principles that can strengthen us as a church. We've been through challenges this year. We will be through more challenges next year. Whatever they are, the Lord will strengthen us through his word, prepare us for them, and we look there today. There are a lot of threats that were facing the first century church, and there are a lot of threats that could face us next year. We don't know what's going to come next year. Could someone sow division in the church next year? We don't know. We've been very united throughout this challenge, but you never know when one strike of the hammer will crack the teacup. Could there be financial difficulty next year? We don't know. Could there be some form of persecution that comes next year? We don't know what is going to be brought our way. One thing that could happen we'll focus in on today, though, and that is the threat of false teaching or false gospels creeping into the church. Always a threat, always could happen, spoken of quite often in the New Testament, and great defense is given to us in letters like this one through it. False teaching or false gospels, you could think of them as any teaching that looks and sounds like the true gospel of Jesus, but is not the true gospel of Jesus. Any teaching that looks and sounds like the gospel that is proclaimed in this holy book, but is actually some other message. Now, the true gospel is that Jesus Christ, God made man, died and rose and now offers forgiveness for sinners that we might be received into God's household. That's the true message. There are many messages that sound like it, but aren't quite the same. We call those false gospels. You might think of it like counterfeit money, money that looks like money, but it's not actually money. And actually, the danger is just the same with false gospels and fake money. Uh, what's on the line here? If a false gospel were to creep into our church, were to creep into our hearts, that danger is the same as if we were to trade all of the money in our bank accounts for monopoly money. The danger is that it wouldn't spend. The money is no good. You might go to Lucas Oil Stadium and try to get a ticket and try to get in, and they would say, that's Monopoly money. You can't, you can't get in. You need real money to get in here. And in the same way, if we were to trade the true gospel given to us in the Word of God for some other message, well, it would spend as well as Monopoly money spends. We would be ushered into the presence of God one day, brought before judgment, lay it before him, that message. We put our faith in this message to, say, to save us. And we would hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. For false messages spend just as well in the court of heaven as monopoly money spends here on this earth. It's a great danger. We must be prepared against it. We must prepare the souls in the church against it. And so we see some protection today 
in how to guard against it. Not to be honest, my favorite thing to talk about. Guys like me get into gospel ministry because we love the real gospel. We don't want to talk about the fake gospel. Bank tellers like to handle real money and put it in the drawer. They don't really care much for monopoly money. And the hearts of men like me are the same about these false teachings. But we must address them because the church needs for us to. So my prayer is that through this message, we will be strengthened against false gospels and false teachings whenever they knock on our door down the road. Let's look at the last paragraph of Titus 1, verses 10 through 16. Here's what the word of the Lord says. It says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The words of the Lord. Do you hear how strong those words are? He's not mincing words here. There is a sense in these words of urgency. And so we have in these words an urgent call for church leaders to combat false teaching and help for that task. Let's look first at the urgency. I think you probably heard it in the words. They are striking. They are strong words. Do you wonder why such strong words could be in the New Testament like this? Well, the reason is that Paul wants to give to church leaders a sense of urgency that false teaching must be combated. Not just any old teaching you disagree with, but teaching that disagrees with the true gospel and presents some other message as the gospel of Jesus. It says it's got to be combated. What he's doing here is sounding the red alert. There are many false teachers in your midst. Red alert. Boop, like... Pay attention, church. And he says with a sense of urgency, things like, they must be silenced. There are many of them, he said. They're upsetting entire families. Red alert. Like, you got to pay attention to this. This is urgent. A prophet of their own has said some of these things, and it is true about these false teachers. They're devoting themselves to Jewish myths. This is urgent. Red alert. Titus, you must combat these. They are detestable. They are disobedient. They are unfit for any good work. Red alert, he says. Get on guard. We must contend against these teachers. Do you feel the urgency in the words. I hope we can maintain that through this entire sermon. I hope I can maintain that for you, that Paul does not want Titus to wait to combat this. He says, the threat is there. We are at battle. We must man our battle stations. Now, the word for in the beginning of the paragraph connects the two paragraphs. Most of you in your translations, your verse 10 will start out with the word for, or maybe because, or something like that. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. So, what's going on here is the paragraph before is connected to this paragraph 
by the word for. That means that this paragraph is the reason for all of the stuff in the paragraph before. All of the stuff that I proclaimed to you for the last four weeks. Why is that so important? Why do we have to do that? Today's paragraph, that's the reason. Titus might ask, why is it so important that I appoint elders in every town just as Paul directed me? Why was that important to him? Because there were so many false teachers. Why is it important that we appoint pastors in our church? Because the threat of false teaching is so large and so urgent, we must address it and we need men to address it. Why do the men appointed in pastoral office have to be blameless, above reproach, trustworthy? This is because there are so many false teachers that they must combat. Why do pastors have to lead strong family lives? Because there are so many false teachers they must combat. If they can't instruct and discipline their own children, they're not going to be able to correct and instruct false teachers in the same way. Why do they have to bear, why do pastors have to bear all of these character qualities in verses 7 and 8? Right? Why must he not be arrogant? Why must he not be greedy? Why does he have to be a lover of good and upright and holy and disciplined? Because of the threat of false teaching. And lastly, in verse 9, why does he have to hold firm to the gospel? Why does he have to be able to give instruction in it? Why does he have to be able to correct those who contradict it? Because of the threat of false teaching. We had the instructions in previous weeks. This week, we look at the threat that is always crouching, always ready to pounce on the church, the one that we must be ready to fight with a sense of urgency. That's what that word for means there. And so we do have some clear instruction in what leaders must do. And it's in verses 11 and verse 13. There's a sense of urgency, right? That we've got to combat it. What exactly do men in my position have to do? Well, verse 11 says the false teachers must be silenced. And verse 13 in the second sentence of it says, therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So what our pastors, what our leaders must do is come to these false teachers with a strong enough correction and rebuke that it's just plain as day that the scriptures teach something different than they teach. A strong enough, sharp enough argument from the scriptures that their mouths are silenced. And anyone who desires to believe the scripture's message will say, okay, I, I see where the pastor is saying this. I see where that teaching was off base. This is said in a different way just a few pages before, and I want to compliment what's said here with what is said there. Now, the goal is restoration, right? Uh, that they may be sound in the faith, verse 13 says. Rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. The goal is go to them, give a strong enough correction that they turn and come back to sound faith. Well, just a few pages before in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the same thing is said in a different way, and I want us to see it there. If you just turn a page or so back, you'll get to the end of chapter 2 in 2 Timothy. This is a very similar letter written to a different man named Timothy, another apprentice of Paul who was left in a different place for a very similar task to bring the strong church of Ephesus to an even greater place of strength. There was false teaching there. And he's given Timothy instruction on how to handle it. He says, in, the, in verse 24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, 
correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So you see there the same goal, and a little bit different of a picture, maybe the other side of the picture of how a pastor is to confront false teaching. The goal is said in here, verse 25, God may perhaps grant them repentance, right? And everything a pastor does to confront false teaching, the goal is that the teacher would repent and come back to the true gospel. But we get a little more clarity in this one. This one says that it is God who may grant the repentance. So now we have a little more clarity in whose role is what. The pastor is to confront with soundness the false teaching. But it is God who may or may not grant repentance. It's not put upon the pastor to bring the person to repentance, only to call them to it. God is the one who may bring repentance. And where we see the words rebuke them sharply in Titus, we see that complemented here by correcting opponents with gentleness. So the sort of correction that a pastor brings must on one hand be sharp, but on the other hand be gentle as well. That's the full picture of the sort of words that you should expect from a man in my position when a false gospel arises in the church. Words that are strong words that are unquestionable from the scriptures, words that are sharp, but words that are gentle as well. So a pastor's confrontation of a false gospel in his church is not meant to be then like a warrior's sword that just comes out and chops off the head and is done with the work. Not sharp like a warrior's sword. No, the confrontation that a pastor brings to false teaching in his church needs to be sharp like a surgeon's blade. A blade that is sharp enough that if it were pressed any further into you as the incision is made would cause you great harm. But because the surgeon has a gentle touch, because the surgeon knows just exactly what to do with the blade, he can make the incision in a way that brings healing to your body, cut out just the cancer or just the thing that needs to be removed without causing true harm to your body or your soul. Because though the blade is sharp, he is handling it with gentleness. Surgeons with good hands are paid a lot of money for that gentle touch that can cut into you but bring healing to you. That is the kind of gentleness we must expect from our pastors when they confront false teaching as well. Not chopping off heads, instead coming in with the surgeon's knife and working his healing with strong and sharp words spoken in gentleness. Can you see then what a high calling is given to a pastor when false teaching comes into his midst? Who among us can give strong, sharp words with gentleness? That is not easy to do. In fact, the only sort of man that can do this is a man that is full of the Spirit. For in our flesh, we'll either cower to being so gentle that our words mean nothing, or we will rise up with ferocity and pounce on someone with no gentleness. These are the two reactions of the flesh. But the Lord says, no, you must do both. You must grasp one without letting go of the other. Only a man full of the Spirit of God can do that. And so I hope that you can see that if I'm a man that is in just as weak of a frame as you are in and beset with sins just as you are beset with sins, church, I need you to pray for me 
urgently. I must be full of the Spirit to accomplish this task that is for me. And anyone else that we appoint to pastor or elder or overseer in our church in his own flesh does not have enough strength to do this. He cannot confront opponents both sharply and gently at the same time unless he is walking in holiness and full of the Spirit of God. Then he has the power and the strength to do it. So here then is a call to pray for your pastor and pray for your pastors as the Lord gives them to you. For we need great help from God's Spirit to confront false teaching both sharply and gently. So that's the instruction then. Pastors are to confront false teaching both sharply and gently, praying that God would bring the false teachers to repentance. Not that he would send them out, but that they would turn and come back to the true gospel. That's the instruction that is before pastors. We have in the rest of the passage, the rest of the paragraph, one hint at where false teaching can spread. That's just a hint, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. And then three red flags of where we might look, like signs that there may be false teaching in our midst if we ever see any of these three red flags. I'll give you the place to look first, and then we'll deal with the three red flags later. In verse 11, we got to ask, where is it that the false teachers are doing their work? It says, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So their strategy was one of two things that are very similar. Either they are going from household to household and turning entire families at once to this false gospel message, whatever it was. Or we do know that the early church was set up in some ways like we are set up with one big gathering and then smaller cell groups that meet in homes. They would call them household groups sometimes. If you've ever been to church that had small groups, basically that kind of format, you got your big worship service on Sunday and then you break down into small groups throughout the week for more instruction and more fellowship. Very similar to how we have Sunday worship and Sunday school. And those groups were often called households because they met in people's houses. So it could be when he says they're uh, deceiving entire families or entire households that he's referring to those cell groups that the teachers are going either from family to family or from cell group to cell group, turning each one, one or two or three at a time. Either way, they're working behind the scenes where Titus is not able to be. Titus is one man. He was overseeing perhaps as many as 20 churches on this island. There were 20 towns. If there was a church in every town, that would have been 20 churches. How many cell groups, our equivalent of Sunday school classes, would be in each church? Well, quite a lot. There's no way that Titus could go to all of them and keep his pastoral guidance in all of those cell groups. And so the false teachers know just where to strike, right? Go to some of those house groups. Go in there and see if we can turn them while they are far from guidance and shepherding before the elders can be installed into the church. That tells us just a little hint of how false teachers tend to work. Wolves that are looking at a group of sheep, at a flock of sheep, they will pick off the few who are straggling and far from the shepherd, right? You're not going to go try to snatch the sheep that is standing right next to the shepherd. No wolf would do that. No, you get the ones that are stragglers on the fringe. And at the same time, false teachers in the church like to creep in through the Sunday school class, through the small group, through the Bible study where the pastor doesn't attend very often, or even in our day and age on YouTube, 
through sermon podcasts, things that you listen to in your spare time when you're far from the kind of the central hub of the church. The teachers like to attach on the fr- attack on the fringe is what I mean. It's rare that a false teacher would try to come up, take the microphone from me and spout out false teaching to everybody. So much accountability right here that that probably would not happen. But in the quiet safety of a house group, when you're all alone with your earbuds in listening to a podcast, that is where they're going to creep in. I think that helps to explain why there is so much false teaching on YouTube, why there is so much false teaching in the podcast world. A lot of true teaching there, but there's a whole lot of false teaching. Why is that? Well, because people that listen to those things are usually doing it outside of the safety net of their local community. They're usually alone when they're listening to it. Rarely do we get together and watch sermon videos together. We do that alone, far from shepherding, and false teachers know that is where to strike. Now, none of that is to say that you shouldn't listen to podcasts, that you shouldn't listen or watch on YouTube, that you shouldn't go to Sunday school classes. All those things have great benefit for you. But you need to be wise to how false teachers act and where they try to lurk. They try to lurk as far from the central hub of your church community as they possibly can, just like they were attacking the families and the households on the island of Crete. Now, that's just a hint at that, so I won't spend any more time than that on that concept there. Next, we'll move on to three red flags that we should look for. If you see any of these signs, that doesn't mean that you definitely have a false teacher in your midst, but it does mean that you should scrutinize more closely the teaching that you are listening to. Look very closely for signs of a false gospel. The first red flag we get to look for is signs of deception and greed. You can see that in verse 10, the false teachers are called deceivers. These are not people who are honestly convinced of their argument and feel they are trying to lead people to truth, unless they've deceived themselves. No, these are people who are employing crafty tricks, who are lying as they are teaching. And we see in verse 11 that they are teaching for shameful gain. Their motive in teaching is greed and gain. And these are, as a rule, two common characteristics among false teachers, things we should look for. Sometimes when you're watching someone teach, you see signs of deception, like they're using the same trick that you've seen other people use in shadier contexts. Sometimes you see someone rise to great wealth or fame through preaching, get a good taste for it, and chase even more of it. When you see these kind of things, a greed for fame, a greed for wealth, a lust for power among speakers, or signs of deception, that's a strong sign. That's a red flag. You might have a false teacher in your midst. Because now the motives are no longer to bring glory to Jesus Christ, but to bring things to the self. That's a person who could at least fall to false teaching easily, or perhaps is already there. That's the first one. Doesn't take long to explain that one. Number two and number three will take a little longer. The second one, the second red flag, is teachers that cater to the vices of a particular culture. Different cultures fall into different sin patterns. Rare is the culture that falls into every sin. I've never seen one. Different ones fall into different sins. False teachers, in their shrewdness, will cater to the particular sins that a certain culture has fallen to. We find this in a verse that sounds strange to us and that I need to 
be careful to explain. That's verse 12. It sounds strange because it sounds as if Paul is condoning prejudice against Cretans. What he says is, he quotes a Cretan poet. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. Now, what he's not doing here is condoning prejudice against Cretan people. He is not saying that every Cretan person is a liar. Every one of them is a lazy glutton. Every one of them is an evil beast. Uh, No, what he is doing is he is saying that the reputation that Crete had earned and celebrated was true of the false teachers in Crete. I'll walk through that kind of slowly. This poet... Uh, who is documented saying this. We, we believe we know who it is. I can't pronounce his name, so I'm not going to try to. He was a Cretan who was celebrating the reputation that Crete had. They had a reputation for beast-like behavior, or what we, w- we would call a person who acted like their reputation a pig. Someone who is so governed by their appetite that they have no manners, no sense of morals, no sense of truth and honesty. They're willing to lie. They're willing to steal. They're willing to cheat. They're willing to just shovel food into their mouths. They're greedy. They're full of gluttony. They're willing to go to bed with whoever they want to, no matter whose wife it is. They don't care about any of these things. All they care about is satisfying the appetite, just like a pig that is running to the trough, has no manners, no sense of who it's trampling on, is just going there. They called that beast-like behavior, and they had a beast-like reputation in Crete. This was so bad uh, that the Greek word for lie was basically Cretais, and they named it after the island of Crete. Their reputation was that bad. This was so bad that, you know, People here in the States from Alabama have the song Sweet Home Alabama, and they love it. People in New York have Frank Sinatra's New York, New York. A lot of people make songs about where they're from. Well, Crete had one of these, too, a poem about how great Crete is. And one of the lines was what's quoted here. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. I can just imagine them chanting this at a bar or a pub or whatever the first century equivalent of this was, celebrating what an immoral people they are. They played into it. They celebrated it. And the false teachers were catering to that sense. They were catering to that reputation that Crete celebrated. They said, we are are beast-like people and we love it. Other places near Crete would insult them. Uh, there was, uh, the word, at least, was at the time there were no wild beasts on the island of Crete, no dogs, cats, cows, and pigs running around, no beasts on the island. People would insult them and say, why would they need beasts? They have each other. Those people act like beasts so much. And they would just celebrate and play right into it. So this is the reputation they had. Not every person there was like this, but it was the island's reputation, right? The false teachers knew this. And they played to it. And so Paul says in verse 13, this testimony is true, but he's not talking about Crete. He's talking about the false teachers. You can tell this because right after that, he says, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Who's he talking about? The false teachers. So that reputation for great immorality and beast-like behavior, Paul's saying that was true of the false teachers. They were acting like permitting and catering to 
this immoral reputation in Crete. Saying, hey, come and, come and follow Jesus. You can still do all the same things. You can still act like a pig and have so much fun. Come follow Jesus. It's fantastic. And Paul says that testimony is true of those false teachers. That's a common tactic among false gospel preachers. To cater to the vices and the sins of a particular culture. When I was in Ecuador, one of the sins in that culture is what we might call animism or witchcraft, some of these rituals that are designed to chase spirits away and things like this. And I may be getting some of the details wrong here, but I watched uh, some of these, uh, I don't know if you'd call them witches or medicine women or whatever you might call them, performing a ceremony where uh, a child would come, pay the person some money. Uh, actually, a parent would come, bring a child, pay the person some money, and this teacher, whoever they were, would take eucalyptus leaves and rub them all over the child and then beat the child with the eucalyptus leaves. And the idea was that it would chase away whatever spirits were in the child, help the child to behave better, and help the child to be healthier. That's common in places like South America and in Ecuador. Where I watched that happen, though, was right outside the steps of the local church, and the church had hired the people who were performing these rituals on these children and were sanctioning and condoning in the name of Jesus, beat the children with the eucalyptus leaves and chase the spirits away. False teachers tend to figure out whatever the desires are in the culture, whatever the vices are in the culture, and cater to them in order to try to earn more followers. That happened in the first century, happens in South America today. And we must assume that it happens here as well. And so if we want to look at where false teaching may be, where might there be some false gospels in 21st century America? Well, some rocks that we can look under are the vices of our people today. What are some of the vices in 21st century culture? What are some things that we want? Well, one thing that we greatly want is to go to bed with whoever we want to and not catch any grief about it. That's very important to 21st century Americans. That vice of immorality is strong here, along with the lack of accountability toward it. And so if that's a vice in our culture, if that's something we love to do, we should look under that rock and ask, is there false teaching built around that idea? And sure enough, you can find teachers who will proclaim a false gospel that will say, what you're doing is not sin. Come and follow Jesus and you don't even have to change. This is a gospel that doesn't confront sin in anyone's lives does not change, is powerless to change people who come and follow this Jesus that they are proclaiming because the teachers are willing to condone the sin in the culture. Another rock you could look under there, another vice in our culture, it just, this year has brought it out more and more. We are a people that are full of hatred for people who are different from us. People who look different from us, some of us are full of hatred toward those. It's easy to see that. It's a little harder to see sometimes that we're also full of hatred for people who think differently than us. That's why our social media platforms are just a big mess. That's why the news is almost unreliable because it's so full of hatred for people that think differently. That's why Thanksgiving dinners are getting so contentious, right? We're just full of hatred for people who think differently from us. Not just disagreement, not just a desire to speak the truth but despising people who think differently from us. And this is true on both sides. And we can look, we can see that if a false teacher wanted to fill up an auditorium, 
All he would have to do is choose one side or the other, choose the left or choose the right, and stoke up that hatred that they have for the other side. We could fill that sanctuary in a month if we just catered to people's hatred for the left or hatred for the right. It would be so easy because we would be catering to the vice of our culture, that vice of hating people who think differently from us. The point is... Wherever there are vices in the culture, just think of them as rocks and look under that rock and see if there is false teaching there. There very often is, and that tells us where to watch. If we see a teacher who is stoking the hatred of a crowd for the other side, that's a red flag. We're probably looking at a false teacher. If we see a teacher who is catering to some of the immoral desires that are in our culture, that's a red flag. Good chance that that is a false teacher. That's our second red flag, the tendency to cater to a culture's vices. The third red flag is similar, but kind of a flip side of it. The tendency to cater to the religious sensibilities in a culture. The truth is, people don't just want to do whatever they want. People want to do whatever they want and feel like they're having a genuine religious experience, like they're on the right side of whatever God or force is out there, like they are doing it right. They want the experience that leads them to feeling that. And so whatever the religious sensibilities of the era are, false teachers will build false gospels that sound like the truth and cater to it. We see this in verse 14. The false teachers were, it says, devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. A lot of people in the first century felt like if they obeyed the Jewish law and whatever commands were out there, then they were doing religion rightly. They didn't really understand the Jewish law, so they could just be taught all sorts of myths about what it really says, and they would feel like they were doing it rightly, feel like they were right before God. That was the religious sensibility in that culture in that day. If I could just do all that stuff, whatever it is, uh, then I would be in the right. So, boom, the false teachers are right there saying, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll make up some commands for you. We'll make up some myths that sound kind of Jewish, teach them as if they were the gospel, and pull people in. You can see these teachers catering to the religious sensibilities of the day. That way, you get to do whatever you want. You follow these extra commands or whatever it is that this religious teacher is teaching, and now you feel like you're in the right you get to have your cake and eat it too. You get to do what you want and you get to be right before God. That's what people want and that's what we often give them. How does that work today? Well, today, religion is kind of a feeling. In the first century, religion was kind of a, a law system. In the 21st century, religion is a feeling. People want to feel like God is in the room. And they believe, most people believe that if God were here, it would feel a certain way on the inside. False teachers know this. And so they do what they can to create the feeling that God is here among us in the room so that we will let down our guard and listen to whatever it is they have to say because, oh man, I just felt it. God was in the room. The truth is when God shows up somewhere, 
it's not an inner feeling of nirvana that we get. It's not some feeling of intimacy or closeness or ecstasy that we get when we're in the room. It's not that feeling that comes when the music just builds up and we go, oh, that was good. That's not the feeling that happens when God is in the room. The feeling that happens when God is in the room is his people are full of awe before him. Our eyes are on him and how great he is, not on ourselves and what we feel like, but him and how great he is. There are feelings that go along with that, but our focus is on him and how great he is. When we think of ourselves when God is near, all we can see is how sinful we are before his holiness. The prophet Isaiah shows this when he's brought before God, and there are great descriptions of what is going on in God's throne. And the only thing Isaiah has to say about himself is, woe is me, for I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. It's not a feeling of nirvana. It's not a, it's not a feeling of, uh, you know, oh, God is here and I can feel it. It's, oh, I am so miserable before God. These are the thoughts we have about ourselves when God is near. Our eyes are pasted onto him and we're made more aware of our sin and brought to trust more deeply in the gospel of Jesus. But of course, in 21st century American religion, you know, true religion is a feeling. The presence of God is a certain feeling within us. And so false teachers know just how to manipulate that, to cater to our religious sensibilities and make it feel like God is in the room. If they're doing that, if they're giving us that false feeling that God is here, that's a red flag. That's a sign that they are building that experience for us to, to influence us to let our guard down and listen to what is said. We can't let them appeal to our religious sensibilities, not to our intuitions, but to the truth and what it says about us. That's the religious version of it. Today, many people do not believe in God at all, and so there's a secular version of it too. Now remember, people want to be able to do whatever they want, and they also want to feel like they're in the right with whatever God or whatever it is is up there, right? Well, people who don't believe in a God look to some other ultimate authority, and one of the new ones is history. And so, whatever direction history is going to go evidently is going to confirm whoever is right in all of these debates. And so, many, many secular people will make claims like, well, we are on the right side of history. And that's a strong appeal, right? In a thousand years our descendants are going to look back at us and think about how backward we are because we keep holding on to books like this, right? That's an appeal to the religious sensibilities of those who are not religious at all. Because even though they don't believe in God, there's still those intuitions in them that there's some force out there that they want to be right before. And if it's not God in heaven, it must be history. So whatever those intuitions are in a culture, whatever it is that people kind of feel surrounding religion, those are rocks also that we can look under and find false teaching. The right side of history argument is one of them. So there we have a sense of urgency to combat false teaching. Never my favorite thing to talk about. I would rather just preach the true gospel, but it is urgent. Uh, we have the call there for religious leaders to confront it in a way that is both sharp and gentle. And we have both a key, a clue on where to look, a hint on where to look, and those three red flags there. I want to close this morning. All this talk about margarine has made me hungry for butter. Talking about false teaching so much makes me hungry to tell you about the true gospel of Jesus. This is the message of salvation that we proclaim. And when you see one of those red flags, this is the message in the Bible to evaluate it against. 
Uh, I say sometimes that there are five parts to it. The fourth one is the true heart of the gospel, the gospel message. Uh, the first pillar in gospel preaching is the grand holiness of God, his worthiness to be worshipped and obeyed by all people. If he truly made us, and truly made all these clouds in the sky, and truly formed every drop of rain that is on your windshield and on your hood right now, a God that powerful is worthy of saying, come and worship me, and we owe him worship. He's worthy of saying, here is how I have designed life. Here is how I have designed humanity. I want you to live and walk this way. A God that good and that powerful can say that. His goodness, his holiness, his worthiness to be worshiped and obeyed. If we sense that, we only have to look around to see the second pillar of gospel preaching. And that is our own failure to worship and obey him. We don't walk in his ways. We don't give him the worship that he is due. When we do give it, it's half-hearted sometimes. And we certainly don't give it to him in the way that he is due. We spurn his ways like a child spurns a curfew. Every time he shows up in worship, we want to recoil against him. Some of us mock his ways openly. We are a people full of hatred for one another, and we are a people, if we will admit it, full of hatred for the God who made us. If we can see how great and holy he is, we can see those things in ourselves, and that's number two. The third pillar of it is the only, the only inevitable consequence of the first two. If he is good and holy and we have rebelled against him, any just God would judge us one day for that. If we can just remove our own entitlement from the situation, we, if we were just somebody else we were looking at, it'd be so easy to say, yes, every person on earth deserves the judgment of God. And if we're real honest, I do too. If we're real honest, we can look at ourselves and say, I deserve God's judgment as well. And those three lead us in a place of fear. If we were to stop there, what bad news this would be. The good news, the heart of the gospel message is what I told you earlier. That Jesus, his name, is God and man and he came to earth to seek and save the lost. Though he is holy in the presence of sin and cannot bear to have sin in his presence, his inclination is to reach out towards sinners and pull us back in, in a way that we don't deserve. He says, come back. He came to seek us and to save us. And we turned on him then too. We showed our hatred for him as we put him on a cross and crucified him and conspired against him. But as he died, he willingly shed his blood for those of us who will trust in him. He says, I offer my bullet, my, my blood, my lifeblood as payment for the sins of anyone who would turn to me and trust me. Come and follow me, he says. And he reaches his arm out to you and says, come and follow me. Come and trust me. Come and be mine. And I will secure for you complete forgiveness for your every last sin. That's the fourth one, the heart of the gospel message. Forgiveness is found in faith in Jesus. And then lastly, fifthly, the new life that he gives to those who follow him. If you turn from sin and trust in Jesus, he will give to you a new heart, a new spirit that he has given to all those who trust in him, a spirit that longs to fear the Lord God and walk in his ways, 
a heart that is soft toward his teaching and wants to listen to him. I wonder if as you hear this, your heart recoils against him. You say, oh, how could he say that? How could the Bible teach things like that? You can sense your heart recoiling against it. The Lord desires to give you a heart that is soft toward the teachings of his word. And he's willing to do it as well. As you, those who come to him have received new hearts that long to follow his ways, that are able to walk in new life in Christ and able to turn from sin. That shows in our lives, it bears in the fruits of our lives. He makes for himself a holy people of every tribe, tongue, and nation who still sin in times, but who turn from it, ask for forgiveness, and walk in the Spirit again. That's the, those are the pillars there of gospel preaching. And if you've never turned and trusted that message before, friend, I call you turn now and trust it. Jesus stands with his arm reached out to you and says, come and return to me. Come and follow me. I want you as my own. This is the time to turn and to follow him. And for everyone, I tell you, when you see some of those red flags in teaching, it's not always a sign that you have a false teacher right out of the get-go, but it's a sign that you need to scrutinize the teaching more carefully. Those five pillars I gave you, if you can remember them, that's the, those are the pillars you need to evaluate that gospel against. Is there a sense of God's holiness? Is there a sense of our sin? Is there a sense of the judgment we are headed toward? Is salvation found by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? And does it lead to new life? That is true gospel preaching, which we must look for. Let us put our trust in him. Let us defend the gospel at every part. And may God help us every step of the way. Let's pray.